coming up on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. Yes, psychedelics are an attention grabber in a certain way. It's not the focus of the initiative, but it is sort of the, the piece that connects it all together in a way because it's the perspective shifting value of psychedelic plants that leads to these insights about who we really are, what our, our place really is in this network of relationship. And reciprocity is something that can only happen within a relationship. And so first you have to understand the relationship and then you can be embodying reciprocity in your life in whatever way that you can. And this is offering one, one possibility for how to do that. Welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast, a weekly conversation series with leaders in psychedelic culture, designed for therapists, healers, retreat leaders, and passionate enthusiasts. Presented by Maya and hosted by me, Eamon Armstrong. Welcome back to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. I am your host, Eamon Armstrong. As the psychedelic renaissance blossoms, many healers and business leaders are rightly looking at environmental conservation and reciprocity with indigenous wisdom keepers. Joseph Mays of Chacruna is directing an indigenous reciprocity initiative, also called ERI, and has some great ideas for how to be in right relationship with indigenous people in the Americas, which he shares on the podcast today. On the show, we discuss the indigenous worldview as it pertains to psychedelic healing. We learn about Chakruna's Ayahuasca Community Committee, on which Joe sits, and consider what well-meaning people might get wrong about reciprocity. Joseph explains the details of Erie and its successes so far. Finally, we discuss what it means to use interest in psychedelics to raise funds for effective altruism. Joseph Mays is an enthobotanist, a researcher, and a writer. He is the program director of Chakruna's Indigenous Reciprocity Initiative, where he conducts research and builds connections with small indigenous communities throughout the Americas to support Chakruna's mission of increasing cultural reciprocity in the psychedelic space. If you'd like to go deeper on this subject, on Wednesday, September 22nd, Maya is hosting Joseph for a talk on Erie. There's a link in the show notes, which will also be available as a recording after the event. And now... Here's Joseph Mays. Joe, welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. This is the second time we will have someone from Chakruna on the show. Bila Bate was on the program one year ago. And I'm delighted to have you on the show right now, especially coming on the heels of Sutton King and a conversation about indigenous reciprocity from her perspective with her work with Journey Collab. And you are working on the Indigenous Reciprocity Initiative from Chakruna. And we're going to learn all about that today. So, Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Excited to talk to you. I'm excited to talk to you too. I, this is a timely moment and I'm excited to talk to you for this reason. There are a lot of well-meaning people in the psychedelic renaissance. In fact, I would say that pretty much everyone in the psychedelic renaissance is well-meaning. There's a little bit of like land grab, money grab energy, but in general, these are people, whether they're therapists or people starting businesses, they're folks who have had a psychedelic experience, 
felt some kind of connectedness, some kind of oneness of all things experience, and want to make a difference. And yet, there's a lot of unknowns and a lot of unknown unknowns, and people end up making a lot of mistakes, typically when relating to the environment and to the indigenous wisdom keepers that have held this medicine for a long time. And you work with both spaces. So for me, the clarification on the issue of how to be properly reciprocal with indigenous groups in the context of psychedelics is enormously important, particularly at this moment. I 100% agree. And I would say I don't have the perfect prescription for that. I'm just going from my own experience and, and trying to take the lessons that I've learned interacting in those spaces and sharing them. And I've learned a lot from people that have worked much longer than I have with Indigenous people and in, in this space as well. And so I'm just trying to take those those lessons forward. Well, I, I assume that we'll have the opportunity over this conversation for you to bring up some of those specific lessons and even how you learn them. And I appreciate you presencing that. But let's talk about you. Let's talk about where you started. I know you have a master's in entheobotany. Oh, no. Entheobotany would be a, a great... Great ethno, topic it's, eth- it's, it's ethnobotany, to, isn't it? Maybe I should switch to entheobotany. Um, <sighs> they overlap, but yeah, ethnobotany. Yeah, let's turn this mistake into a win. Let's talk about the difference between <laughs> ethnobotany and my opportunistic misreading of my notes to say entheobotany. They are kind of related, aren't they? Yeah, I think entheobotany would be like a subdivision, subfield of ethnobotany. So ethnobotany is just the study of the relationship between people and plants. So you study the natural world from a biological standpoint, a botanical standpoint, but always within the context of human communities. So it really covers all plant life because there isn't really an ecosystem that's disconnected from human beings, but usually people focus on food, agriculture, or medicine, ceremony, as well as textiles, building materials, anything. Everything that we use is extracted from nature in some way, but it's easier to see this relationship in a more traditional society or, or a community that's more closely connected to the land. But in reality, all human communities and cities everywhere are still embedded in that relationship. Oh, that's great clarification. Did you get into ethnobotany in part because of a passion for psychedelics and plant medicine? Was that an access point for you? Has that always been present in your investigations? Definitely has always been present, although it has somewhat been in the background in, in recent years, or at least I should say up until a couple of years ago when I reconnected with the psychedelic space and with Chapruna. But earliest experiments with psychedelics began in high school, and certainly they, they opened up a lot of gates for me and in, in my thinking and my perception and just one of the most incredible things about them to me besides just the visual and mental kind of fireworks and the amazing world that you can dive into just from a purely observational point of view it, it really taught me about or reaffirmed this idea that everybody has a unique perspective because they shift your perspective so profoundly and everyone has different experiences with them, but they also all have shared experiences. And that's an important lesson that I try to carry around with me is just that my perspective is limited by my own conditioning and, and my own position. And everybody else's perspective is 
unique to my own. And, and so there's always something that I can learn from someone else's perspective on an individual level, but also this goes into like the anthropology, ethnobotany side on the cultural level, on the geographic historical level, every community has a different perspective and lineage and, and kind of tradition as well. I've heard it said that part of the medicine that is coming out of the Amazon is in addition to plants, a medicine of worldview itself. So what you're saying right now and that you're recognizing these different perspectives, part of the healing that comes along with, say, an ayahuasca ceremony is the worldview of interconnectedness that accompanies that plant, that ceremony, and the way that people live who have been holding that lineage. Yeah, well, one of the other biggest kind of experiences or, or insights that psychedelics, I think, give a lot of people, including myself, is this idea of connectedness. And that relates to this worldview, as you put it, that that we're getting a glimpse of. And and, and I started reading ethnographies in, in high school and college. Originally, I was just a biology major. I love nature. I, I have a heart for conservation. But for some reason, I mean, for a lot of reasons, the conservation approach for a lot of environmentalists in this country and in Europe and in uh, the global north has been removing people from the picture and trying to imagine that you can protect and preserve nature by closing it off from human activity. But that's has been shown to be kind of a recipe for failure. And, and the truth is that we have to conserve nature in relationship with human communities. And that is, it's pretty well summarized in this concept called biocultural conservation, which is just the idea that ethno-linguistic diversity and cultural diversity is directly uh, related to biological diversity. So if you look at the world, if you just look at the numbers, anywhere where there are multiple languages uh, being spoken, multiple culture groups, there is also higher biodiversity. And so it seems to indicate that if you want to conserve biological diversity, if you want to protect ecological well-being, you have to protect human communities as well. And those are really the same project. Well, I'm going to foreshadow our future conversation, not to open this door yet, but I think another key failure of the conservation efforts of the Global North has been the idea that we can be sort of paternalistic stewards of these processes and come in from somewhere else and say how we will heal the biodiversity, what we will do, the projects, all the things. So I think a big part of our conversation today, I'm guessing, is going to be the, the kind of fallibility of the approach of thinking that you know better than these diverse communities in these biodiverse regions. Yeah, yeah. So that's, I, I think, coming back to the threat of the difference in worldviews between many people in the global north and then many people that live in small communities more closely connected to the land and the environment. This is another huge part of my work has been trying to bridge that, that gap and show how our, my own cultural conditioning and then many people from similar kind of uh, backgrounds has engendered a feeling of separation and alienation from the natural world, from ourselves, from our communities, our families, our environments, and that that is only one story of many that you can participate in, that you can feel that you are 
existing in. And it's not necessarily scientific. It's just the cultural story that we've been given and that we kind of unconsciously operate under. And it will, if you don't uh, address that, I don't, I think you're going to fail in any conservation approach um, that you take. So there is a, an alternative to that. And, and we call it ontology and in, in ethnobotany and, and in anthropology. It's, it's just the view of reality that you have. So it's not like a worldview, but just like a world. So like what world do you live in and that you feel that you live in and that is real to you. And so if you feel like you're just a separate individual that's closed off from everything else and you don't have a connection, you're not part of this network of relationship, then it's much more difficult to navigate those relationships and heal them and properly address them and balance them. And so part of the lessons that I've learned from field work and just from reading indigenous activists and, and writers is that there is a different story that you are invited to step into. And in some ways it is like related to a belief system, but beliefs are things that you can't just decide to change. It takes a kind of regular, consistent practice to shift them. And maybe sometimes psychedelics can be catalysts for that, but it still requires some effort on your part daily or, or just on a regular basis. And then you will notice that you start to see things differently. Well, and that is the long tail process of healing. You know, it's not simply knock out a ceremony and you're, and you're good. There's a lot more that goes into it and a lot of work as well. So let's drop in a little bit about Chakruna. So we've had Bia Labate on the podcast. I'd love to hear a little bit about Chakruna in your own words, just so that our listeners who may be less familiar with the publication, with the other enterprises that belong under that umbrella, and also specifically the Ayahuasca Community Committee on which you sit. So let's talk a little bit about Chakruna and the work of that community committee. Yeah, so I, I started volunteering for Chakruna um, a little over two years ago. I finished my master's in ethnobotany in 2019. For the past year, I began developing a proposal and, and working for Chakruna on the Indigenous Reciprocity Initiative and then started my full-time position as program director in June. So we launched the initiative in April after about a year of development and, and now it's it's going and it's growing and and I'm really looking forward to seeing where where it continues to take us. But Chakruna to me is is just like a unique voice in the psychedelic space. It's a it's a platform for public education primarily. It promotes marginalized voices. I think is one of the most important parts of Chakruna. So it, it's it's trying to bridge the gap between the ceremonial use of psychedelic plants and then the clinical use as they're being used in psychedelics-assisted psychotherapy and in the psychedelic businesses that are all springing up. And it's trying to take somewhat of an academic perspective, but also make it accessible to everyone. And diversity, equity, access, and inclusion are all important pieces of that. And for me, because of my path, I feel obligated to work with indigenous communities and on a project of environmental and ecological restoration and cultural restoration as they're all linked for me and 
Chakruna has, you know, different working groups and committees that are like maybe focused on racial justice or focused on women's issues. The Ayahuasca Community Committee is just uh, a group of different experts um, in the field that are just closely connected to communities that use the psychedelic plants in ayahuasca or have been working in that field for a long time. And they're concerned with all the issues around ayahuasca, including access and inclusion, but also conservation, over-harvesting, any issues that come up in the ayahuasca tourism industry or, or just the growing kind of world of ayahuasca tourism, including sexual abuse. You know, we have published sexual abuse guidelines for ayahuasca participants and practitioners. We have different researchers and, and just people that that have that as part of their life and, and have something to offer to it. So it's kind of a more general working group within Chakruna. And then my place within that quickly became focused on the Indigenous Reciprocity Initiative. Okay, that makes sense. So let's get right into Erie, the Indigenous Reciprocity Initiative. Now, you've already mentioned that that was something that was initially launched in April. You came in full-time in June. Let's talk a little bit about first what it is and then also the timeline of sort of how this initiative is has developed and where we're at in its expression. Great. Yeah. So this initiative grew out of my field work. I worked in the Amazon in a community called Sachopen, which is a, a Yanesha community. This is a indigenous agricultural community in central Peru in the Pasco region. And it sits at the edge of the Amazon basin in the foothills of the Andes Mountains. And this community is, is one of the indigenous groups participating in the Indigenous Reciprocity Initiative, or Erie, as we like to call it, because it's much easier to say. And within Erie, there are 20 different indigenous organizations, and they're all community-led initiatives that are meant to meet the self-determined priorities of the local community on the ground. It's meant to be a grassroots network. So it's a, it's a comprehensive online resource of 20 organizations, and they're all working on different projects to support plant medicine, nurturing ecological well-being. And, and this includes like plant nurseries to replenish medicine plants within the community, nurseries that are working on reforesting with native food crops, native um, building and textile trees and plants, as well as bolstering food security in, in other ways, fighting land tenure, land rights, activism, and a host of, of different issues that are all basically determined by the local community as opposed to being implemented by the fund or by the, by the uh, fundraising effort itself. So it's meant to be like a, a long-term sustainable and resilient program that links these different grassroots organizations and has a bottom-up structure. And so the donations to these groups are not attached to any specific agenda and there are no strings attached to the to the money and so it's trying to change the model a little bit of indigenous conservation as well as environmental conservation taking those lessons that we talked about before about how indigenous managed lands have higher biodiversity higher carbon storage all the markers of ecological health are greater in indigenous managed forests in locally and community owned forests than they are in national parks and preserves and reserves. So 
if you know you can focus on the numbers but just that that fact tells us that supporting indigenous autonomy and agency supporting indigenous communities seems to be an impactful way to also support the environment without having to come up with the the plan yourself for how you're going to manage the land and and fix the ecological imbalances instead we're empowering the local communities to do that and trying to create a pathway and an avenue for investment into that so it's aimed at both individuals who have felt the effects of psychedelic plants in their life they felt the benefits of psychedelic plants in some way maybe they traveled to south america or mexico or they've participated in indigenous ceremony or maybe they've just had it in a clinical setting but they still feel a, a connection and a desire to give back and maybe don't know how and also this is aimed at the businesses that are all growing out of the psychedelic renaissance trying to encourage them to participate in this reciprocal relationship to recognize and acknowledge their place in that and and then from there that, that they have an obligation to give back to indigenous communities to support both the environment and the cultures that plant medicines come from one number that showed up as I was researching this that was quite surprising for me was that in a review of funding for Native American projects between 2006 and the present, less than 1% went directly to Native communities. So the idea that less than 1% actually goes to these communities is pretty remarkable, particularly when you think of like how bloated bureaucracies can be for these big nonprofits with huge staffs and very little money reaches the ground. And I knew that little money can reach the ground in these cases, but I had no idea that it was less than 1%. That seems ridiculously inefficient. Yeah, yeah. those numbers are shocking, but on, on one hand, but on the other hand, I knew that already and, and seeing it uh, written out there just confirms it. But the idea with Erie is to try and bypass those uh, bureaucratic obstacles to try and cut out as many intermediaries as possible and create a direct connection, a direct pathway. So for example, the resource that we built, we welcome everyone to read it and look at each group and each organization and you're, you can go straight to them and donate directly to them. You don't have to go through our pool of funds or donate through Tracuna at all. But we also wanted to create a, a pool of funds that large businesses could donate to, that individuals could donate to that gets evenly distributed to each group, all 20 of the, of the groups participating. So there's two different mechanisms there, but we chose not to gatekeep in, in as much as we could. Well, and with that pool of funds, there is a small percentage that is going to Tracuna as a kind of management fee or an admin fee. Can you Tell me, what, what is that amount and, and what does that amount go to so that when these companies are, are donating in this more direct line to Native communities, they kind of understand what that, that smaller percentage goes to? That goes to just pay for hosting the website, keeping all those channels open so that there is a way to receive funds and disperse funds, just paying for me to be able to manage it and, and network and interface with each of the indigenous groups, each of the communities. And it's, yeah, it's just basically paying for the, the management and processing costs of, of running the fund. We tried to keep it as small as possible. 
Okay, so let's get a little bit into kind of where we're at in the psychedelic community in regards to reciprocity. And a question that I wanted to ask you as someone who's investigated these matters, in your opinion, what's the number one thing that well-intentioned people in the psychedelic space get wrong about supporting indigenous communities, about learning from them and helping transmit their healing powers globally in the way we've seen ayahuasca and other plant, plant medicines move around the world. There's a lot of well-intentioned people who feel that they are helping facilitate global healing through helping with access to these medicines and these communities, these traditions, these ceremonies. What is the number one thing that those well-meaning people are getting wrong? There's a couple of things that come to mind when, when you ask that question. So I want to make sure that I, I try to touch on each of them. One thing that I think a lot of people don't understand is just the power imbalance, the inherent power imbalance that exists between anyone that's part of an organization, a nonprofit, an NGO, a business, or is just an individual that's coming from a place of, of greater privilege between you and, and the indigenous communities that you might want to support. And so, for example, you know, we're, we're providing funding to these projects. So then anything that, that we present to them is in this context of uh, this power imbalance. And so it's tempting for many people to want to platform indigenous voices and have access to indigenous communities because the need and, and the recognition that we need to have more of this perspective involved in these conversations is real. And it's, and it, like you said, it's a, it's a well-intentioned instinct or, or just response, but it has to be also taken with the recognition of the reality of that power imbalance. So if, if I am an organization that's funding an indigenous community, and then I ask them to participate in my panel and my conference or be, be on my forum and dedicate their time and, and get over all the technical obstacles to have that happen, which is a good thing in and of itself, but they're in a position where they can't really say no in that, in that example, because they're receiving money or support and then they're asked to do something. It's not really an open question that's so easy to just say yes or no to. There would be, it would be difficult for them to say no if they didn't want to do that. And so it's really important for everything to be framed in a way where we're just offering ourselves in whatever way is most supportive to these projects. And if that includes public facing sort of things where they would want to participate in uh, a panel or offer their voice to a conversation that we're facilitating, then that's great. But it, but it has to be done in, in a way that acknowledges that imbalance, that, that power imbalance. And another part of that is it requires building relationships of trust and those take time. And, and those are not instant things that people don't have instant access to, to just expect others to donate their time or, or, or perspective, whatever they're doing, they, they need to make sure that there's just compensation going on, that, that, the imbalances are addressed in as best way as, as they can be. And yeah, it just requires a little bit more care and consideration when approaching that. I spent over a year building the Indigenous Reciprocity Initiative and building those relationships of trust. And some of those 
stretch back multiple years into the past. And then all of a sudden people will reach out to Erie and ask, I want, I want this person. I want some, like some of the leaders, some of the community leaders who are involved in their work to stop what they're doing and come participate in my panel about drug policy in the United States or intellectual property and patenting. And you have to ask yourself who's benefiting from that. Is the indigenous community, is that indigenous speaker, or is it you and your conference? Who's really getting something out of that? And in most cases, it's not it's not the indigenous community. It's it's us and it's our audience, which we need to be educated. We need the, to address that place of ignorance, but it has to be done in the right way. And there was one other thing that maybe you can refresh my mind about the question. Uh, yeah, the, well, the question was, what was one thing? And now we've already got two, and I'm excited for the third. But the thing that people get wrong, the well-intentioned people get wrong yeah. about reciprocity with indigenous communities. And I, and I prefaced it in part with, you know, there's a lot of people who feel greatly inspired by their psychedelic experiences, particularly yes. in a ceremonial container like ayahuasca, for example. Yeah. What, what are they getting wrong when they're trying to bring that healing out to the world? I think it, looking too far outward would be a clumsy way of putting it. But one of the things that yeah, many people tend to, to gain from, from psychedelic insights is, is the connection to nature and love for nature and maybe for, for community. And then people seek that out in faraway places, in, in indigenous communities, in the Amazon, in wherever it might be in the world that calls to them and they want to travel there and, and feel the need to travel there in order to connect with nature, in order to connect with this worldview of, of connection, of interrelationship. But the, I think one important thing that I've been trying to integrate into my life is just that there is a place wherever you are in the world, you're living on indigenous land and you're living on in an environment that has a rich relationship, a, a rich network of relationships, ecological relationships um, with you and with your community and with wherever you are. And, and it starts with yourself and like your relationship with yourself. And then also the immediate community that you have around you and the immediate environment where you are. And there are, there's an amazing ecosystem of diverse plants around you, wherever you are. And, I think I would encourage people to try and engage with that as much as you can and, and learn about that as much as you can and connect with the, the, the land that you're on and the environment where you are. Not to say that nobody should travel and nobody should go try and, and, and pursue that, that experience that you're looking for, but I think that has to be done in the right way as well. You have to be as conscious of your impact on the places where you travel, of the impact of your travel, as well as the history behind those relationships between where you're coming from and where you're going, and those ecological relationships as well as historical and material relationships, and that traveling in that way can cut down on, on any of the negative consequences of that. But also I think traveling might not always be necessary. You can, you can connect wherever you are in some way. 
Well, that's, that's the beauty of psychedelics, is you can always travel. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you can always take a trip if you want. You don't have to get on a plane. Okay, so back to the initiative itself. You've been developing it for about a year. It launched in April. What sorts of projects or organizations or communities have you been able to give funding to? How is the initiative blossoming in this moment? It's blossoming beautifully. Right now, we're... we're into our second quarter of funding. So I've, I've tried kind of thinking of it in, in four quarters. It's one year long pilot program. So after the first three months, we were able to disperse the first round of funds. We raised just under $60,000 in those first three months and hoping to top that in the next quarter and the next one and the next one. And each organization is doing different things. But you know, my goal for this was to fund whatever needed to be funded. So whether that was like filling up the tank of the truck that they need in order to get to the hospital or get to uh, wherever they needed to go in order to deliver vital medical supplies or, or nursery supplies in order to um, facilitate whatever projects they're working on, pay the salary of their indigenous employees or, or community members. And that way, not having any strings attached to the funds allows that to happen freely and is different than, than many other funding models. And there's been a lot of amazing stories that I get to, to hear about every day. The group that I was most closely connected to because I did my fieldwork with them was the Yanesha in Sachopen, and they have a nonprofit called The Seven Elements, which is primarily an organic coffee co-op where they, they're they all stakeholders and they, they produce organic coffee using permaculture. So the principle of, of keeping some of the wild forest intact and it's intercropping it within the, the coffee plots as well as being fully organic. And for them, it, it's thought of as kind of the way that their ancestors would have done it. And we also were able to, in this first three months, help fund the bee boxes that they're growing there. So there's a, a woman-managed apiary in Sachopen and in some of the neighboring communities where they have stingless bees that are producing honey, like high-quality honey that they use to make you know, antibiotic medicine, to make food, to make all sorts of different products that they can then sell or, or keep for themselves. And it just creates another revenue stream for them in addition to the coffee. It also yeah, it helps create more economic resilience, but also helps remediate the environment because those bees play an important role in the ecosystem. And they had kind of a rough winter. Of course, they, they, they don't have, they have a rainy season, but it got pretty cold in the low, kind of the low mountains where they are. And so they lost some of their bees this past year. And so now they're replenishing that and it's going really well. They had a really good coffee harvest in addition to the bees and, and they were able to bottle their first honey products and everything. And that's one example. And another example is uh, Alianza Arcana in, in Peru. It was a Shipibo group. The president of the nonprofit is a Shipibo leader and they, they are really focused on their medicine garden, trying to replenish the population of Benisteriopsis copy and other plants involved in ayahuasca brew because they've definitely seen the effects of overharvesting that increased ayahuasca tourism has created. Unfortunately, 
it's become such a valuable commodity that sometimes indigenous communities can't use it anymore. It's being overharvested by people not from the community who just cut down whole trees to get their vines from root to tip and then sell them all at Iquitos and, and like tourist hotspots. And it's, it's a problem throughout Amazonia, but definitely being felt probably most by Shipibo communities, especially in Peru. And those are two examples, but every single one is a well of rich historical and, and botanical and ecological learning and knowledge for me. And, and I'm happy to support it. The example that you just gave strikes me as um, an ideal way to talk about the thing we were just discussing in the beginning, which is if someone from the global north decides that they want to preserve ayahuasca vines in the Amazon, they just simply would not be as able to do that efficiently than the people who are actually there where it's woven into their culture. I could imagine that an NGO that's out of Los Angeles not really understanding the territory and then not really understanding how this overforestation is happening, maybe banning certain people from certain places, not an understanding of the rich and complex layers of issues at play there. But when you are actually directly supporting a reforestation program through the planting of medicinal gardens, that seems like a much more savvy way to solve that problem or at least to contribute to restoration of these plants. Yeah, the irony of a lot of attempts to address these things like overharvesting at an institutional level is that it doesn't achieve the goal of, of actually stopping the poaching or overharvesting that's being done by non-native or non-local people and businesses, but it does affect the indigenous communities negatively and if they're not allowed to hunt on their own land or, or harvest on their own land. And so that's part of the philosophy behind Erie is just strengthening indigenous autonomy and, and trusting them to make their own decisions about the management of their own land and resources. And so another group we work with is called Yakum in, in Ecuador. And a lot of their work involves community mapping. So like allowing the community to use like GIS and, and other technologies to map their own territory and then determine where valuable resources are that need protection, where they need to focus reforestation efforts for specific plant populations, and deciding what do we want to grow or, or seed or replenish with our nursery, and how do we want to move forward to protect and manage our own resources in our own land. And those are the kinds of projects that are really important in Erie. Um, one thing that you also just reminded me about was just the the idea of the fund being something that's evenly distributed to all 20 organizations is an important part of it because inevitably certain groups are more well known to the psychedelic community they might be more attractive or glamorous for whatever reason the group i just mentioned the shipibo probably many people would recognize shipibo Kunibo if you've ever been to a treatment center or or been involved in in plant medicine and so we didn't want to create a situation where only certain groups or organizations that people already know about are getting attention or support and we just you know we curated this resource and built these relationships in this network in order to include communities from a wide distribution of different environments within the americas and tried to try to achieve like a, an even balance as, as best as we could 
there's a, an idea that indigenous people that are deeper in the forest are more authentic somehow than the ones that live by the roads or, or that are more integrated. And this is one of those myths that gets demystified when you really engage with indigenous communities and see that there is no kind of static indigenous culture. And the idea of authenticity is so poorly defined. And really it's up to the local people to define it for themselves and not for us to try and figure it out or or come up with our own pronouncements about who is more authentic and who isn't. And a lot of it is performative for Westerners, for people from the global North. And for me, it always comes back to stressing the autonomy of indigenous communities and local communities and their agency and trying to support that and empower that as, as much as possible. So you talked about how Erie is in four quarters where you're raising funds through the initiative and then you're distributing them. What is the long-term goal of Erie? Where, where would you like to see this initiative go in the long term? I'd like Erie to also be a bridge between the Global North and, and Indigenous communities, but also a living network that's organic and that grows and that is long-lasting and sustainable. So not a short-term relief fund or effort that's just meant to address a, a immediate crisis, but something that builds the foundation for uh, a network that lasts long after this year of funding ends, as well as, as creating a network that the communities and projects involved can draw on and that they can communicate with each other and share ideas and, and information because they all are facing so many similar struggles, even though they're in different places and trying to just create a network and a pathway that maybe works its way into everyone's model. That if you're building a retreatment center, if you're uh, building a business around psychedelic plants or psychedelic compounds that are synthetic or second generation, that there's a built-in reciprocity model, maybe a percentage of all future profits or a sort of built into your integration platform of your, of your treatment center or of your practice where there's always something addressing the idea of indigenous reciprocity there for people to explore and learn and integrate into their lives in some way so that it's just something that's that has a longer life in, in people's minds and in their practices. So not something that's just short-lived or superficial. Oh, I love that. And I hope for that too. And I think that these conversations are happening and they're so important. The podcast immediately preceding this is with Sutton King, who's doing an indigenous reciprocity trust with Journey Collab. So the conversation is alive in the psychedelic community. And I appreciate the nuance with which you are describing this in our podcast today. Now, you're actually going to be giving a talk that's hosted by Maya. Maya also supports this podcast, which is in two days on September 22nd. This podcast will be live. And if you are listening to this podcast prior to September 22nd, 2021, you too can join and hear an even deeper expression of what this initiative is about and how to support it. And that is, that's going to be at 5.30 to 6.30 Pacific Standard Time um, on September the 22nd. Let's talk a little bit about how 
you talk about an initiative like this. Psychedelics are cool, and so you can get attention for people to contribute. But that must also be pretty tricky, right? How are you using psychedelics and talks like this one you'll be doing with Maya to raise funds, and how does that work? Good question. I think the relationship between psychedelic plants and indigenous communities is is seems obvious, but many people maybe think, well, I'm I'm focusing on synthetic psilocybin or or I'm using second generation psychedelics like MDMA and LSD. And you know, what what's the connection for me and why should I care about these issues? And I think it's important to point out that even those those compounds like LSD comes from ergot from from a fungus that grows on rye, which has been used in folk medicine for thousands of years, maybe longer, and comes from an, an indigenous context ultimately. And, and even MDMA, it's considered a mescaline-like compound, and we understand mescaline because of the study of peyote and San Pedro, which are both cacti used by indigenous communities. And the the scientists that were first pushing psychedelic science, to which we owe our whole psychedelic renaissance, they were all inspired by their experiences sitting in teepees with the Native American church, with with Native Americans in Canada and the U.S., so Humphrey Osmond and, and Abram Hoff. All of their experimentations with LSD were inspired by these experiences in the Native American church. And so there's really, you can point to any compound and find it a thread that leads you back to indigenous communities. And that continuity is something that's important to acknowledge. And no matter what business you have or what you do, you are extracting from, from nature in order to produce your commodities or, or to live your life. And so do if you acknowledge that you have this relationship with the natural world or with the environment, then you have to ask yourself how to move forward from there and how to best make it a reciprocal relationship where you're giving back as well as taking. And I think how psychedelics come into play there is just, that's one of the things that they tend to facilitate is this de-alienation. So our culture and our kind of social environment alienates us from ourselves and from our communities and families, as well as our labor as well as our medicine our food everything that we consume you're meant to be um, cut off from the source of that from the cost of that and so as soon as you de-alienate a little bit and start to reconnect with that you realize the true nature of those relationships and the interplay that you're existing within at all times and so if you've realized that you actually do exist within this network of interrelationship that you're part of a society and community of other beings that are both human and non-human, other organisms, plants and animals and fungi, then you're faced with the question of like, so now I see my position in this, in this network of relationship and now how do I move forward and navigate that in the best way, the most ethical way, the most impactful way? How do I address the urgent climate change crisis that we're all facing, which the brunt of which is being felt by indigenous communities. And also the the front lines of the fight against it is being fought by indigenous communities as well. And so that just uh, reinforces the necessity to support 
them in that fight as much as you can. And so I think there's something for everyone in that story, in that narrative, uh, no matter who you are or where you come from. So yes, psychedelics are an attention grabber in a certain way. It's not the focus of the initiative, but it is sort of the, the piece that connects it all together in a way, because it's the perspective shifting value of psychedelic plants that leads to these insights about who we really are, what our, our place really is in this network of relationship. And reciprocity is something that can only happen within a relationship. And so first you have to understand the relationship and then you can be embodying reciprocity in your life in whatever way that you can. And this is offering one, one possibility for how to do that. And I think it's important because it, it helps illustrate that story for a lot of people. So I, I like to talk about my own experiences in the field, in the forest with indigenous communities, with the elders that, you know, really taught me a lot about that relationship, about listening to nature that's communicating with us at all times, even when we're not listening or can't hear it. And no matter what you're doing, even if you're like watching sports on TV, which some of my closest friends in the indigenous communities would do, but also they would be fully engaged with, with the bird song, with the sounds of the forest, with, with their work in remediating their land and talking about their ancestors and about trying to live as their ancestors did isn't something that's reaching back into the past, but it's moving forward towards the future where they're living in, in balance with the environment and they're free from the pressures of the, the global market that, that constantly reduce their choices. And just trying to support that movement is all comes together in the Indigenous Reciprocity Initiative and the way that I talk about it. I love that. I love that. And that's a wonderful kind of resting place for us in this conversation because it really gets to the DNA of what's going on with this initiative and, and your work. We always end this podcast the same way, which is giving you an opportunity to speak directly to psychedelic practitioners. And so I'm curious in the context of everything that we've discussed today, specifically with an eye to those individuals who are dedicated to healing and therapeutic restoration for individuals that are suffering and are using plant medicines and next generation psychedelics as their tools. What would you like to share with those individuals from the context of where you're sitting? I would like to learn from those individuals because I feel like I, I would never presume to give advice or instruction to, to people on that very difficult and challenging path of providing healing for, for others. So I think many of them are probably already familiar with what I'm saying, but if you're not, I think it's important to learn and, and educate yourself on the history behind any, any compounds that you're involving in your practice, whether they come from a plant or not, and, and the historical relationship that different human communities have had with those compounds, with those plants, and the ongoing struggles that they're facing because you know indigenous people are still feeling the effects of colonialism, of, of extractive capitalism, of 
all the models that everyone is operating under in the psychedelic space, even if you're a therapist, you're still embedded in this system that is creating all the problems that this initiative and many others are seeking to address. And so it's important to acknowledge that and try to understand it and have you know, respect and, and appreciation and gratitude towards where those plant medicines originate, where those practices originate. Um, yeah, I don't know, really, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a hard um, question for me to think about what I would say, because I, I feel like they're all on the, on the right track. I, I guess I would push for more, you know, if you're a therapist and you're giving, you're using these plant medicines I want your voice to be stronger in the conversations with the larger healthcare providers, with the companies that are mass producing these compounds who are profiting and patenting them. If you're depending on any of those, those are the people that need to listen to your voices because then I think this reciprocity would be a natural outflow of that. So if, if every psychedelic company that was profiting from psychedelic plants or plant medicines or, or psychedelic compounds was more democratic and, and listening to those, the voices of those therapists and the, and the people providing care, then the reciprocity would, would just be a natural kind of step in the whole process. And everybody would, would want to participate in it uh, because I think everybody in that space does have a, a, love of nature and an appreciation and, and care for indigenous communities. And it's just a matter of how to act on that. I love that invitation. So just to wrap up today, we do have this presentation that's coming up in two days and that will be recorded. So it's possible to check back in on that on a later date. We'll have this in the show notes, the link to the talk as it is happening live via Zoom. And then that will be updated. You'll be able to watch the recording if you're not able to attend. If you are able to attend, just so you know that 100% of ticket sales will go to Erie. So that's 100% of your contribution will go directly to what we've discussed today. So that's September 22nd from 5.30 to 6.30 Pacific Standard Time, or it'll be recorded afterwards. And Joe, for you, where can people follow you, track your work? How can people connect with you personally? Well, first I would just direct everyone to chakruna-iri.org, which is where the uh, Indigenous Reciprocity Initiative lives. And chakruna.net, I've, I've got an article on there that talks about my work a little bit. Personally, you can connect with me on Instagram at C-H-I-E-F-L-O-W. I have a website, joemays.org, which hopefully will be up and running whenever this is heard. And yeah, I'm pretty focused on this project right now, but I'll be in this space for a long time, I hope. Well, and we're, we're delighted to have you in this space. It's really, it's an important voice that you hold. And I love your nuanced perspective on these important questions. I'm glad we got to explore them today on the show. Thank you so much, Eamon. I really appreciate you having me on and, and talking to me today. That was a true gift. It is, it is my pleasure. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for joining us on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please join the Psychedelic Therapy Facebook group to talk about it. 
You can also share it with your friends or leave a review on iTunes so more people can discover the show. The Psychedelic Therapy Podcast is presented by Maya, a platform designed to help psychedelic therapists manage and measure client journeys. You can head to mayahealth.com to learn more. The show is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.